and, uh, and, and it's a big deal. It's a big deal to God. Like his worship is, is and him being worshiped is the preeminent thing. And we're going to get there in the sermon today uh, a little later on, um, but never underestimate, never underestimate the <clears throat> what is going on in a worship service when God's people are coming to give Him uh, praise and glory to stop, to, to come together to sing His praises. I tell people often that uh, not only uh, is the worship good <laughs> and, the, and hopefully the sermon's good, but there's more ministry that goes on before we start singing and after we are done singing on a Sunday morning here. And from time to time, and almost every week, you'll see groups of people huddled up and, and talking or praying, uh, people using the back room here, the back room there, uh, ministering to one another. That's God's intentions for His church, for sure. And uh, just encourage all of us to continue to embrace that uh, to embrace the, um, uh, the, <clears throat> the plan that God has for his church and to, to kind of fight against. I'm way off my notes already. It didn't take long. But um, one of the things that kind of keeps rumbling around in my mind uh, this year so far, and we've been doing this chronological read, but, but <clears throat> more in the context of, of our culture anyway, and, and we've been going through this um, series on how to thrive in a decaying culture but one of the signs of a decaying culture Jesus talked about in Matthew 24, and, and this is, the, this is the, uh, the attitude that's in the culture that's out there. And he's, Jesus says, and the love of many will grow cold. And I think as Christ followers, like, that has to be a full frontal assault by us, right? Like all hands on deck. That's what we're going against is this idea that love in our culture will grow cold. And I just, uh, that's one of the great things and a great sign when you see people gathering up and ministering to one another. They're loving on one another. They're caring for one another. They're bearing one another's burdens. They're getting stuff either off their chest or, or they're, they're being able to, to pick somebody's brain and say, hey, I need some wisdom. I need some counsel here. Help me out. So it's a great thing. Uh, all right, now here we go. Happy Father's Day. Right? I'll get back to my notes. Welcome, greetings. If you're new here, we just uh, are glad that you're here with us. We do want to say happy Father's Day to all the fathers that are out there and uh, appreciate all of your investment. I actually, um, I actually uh, saw this gift, and I thought about getting it for Robbie and Jonathan, two new fathers, right, in our midst. And, uh, and you, know what it's, you know what it is? It's a snackle box. It's the ultimate gift for a dad who's going to take their kids fishing. It's called a snackle box. It's a hybrid of a Lunchable and a tackle box. So you open that baby up, there's meat, there's cheese, there's crackers, everybody's happy, the kids aren't whining because there's nothing to eat, and they're not catching any fish. You can bait your hook with it, right? You can throw the crackers at the ducks, at, at the geese. It's called a snackle box. Just look it up, you'll love it. It's a great idea. I didn't have time to put it all together, but it was a good idea worth sharing. All right, we've been looking at the variety of uh, different biblical characters uh, to answer this question that I mentioned earlier. Uh, how do we as Christians, how do we thrive in a decaying culture? Uh, we live in a post-Christian culture. There's not really much debate about that if you look at um, where our culture has come from uh, and uh, where it is currently. And today we're going to look at um, one of the two good kings 
one of the two good kings that, now I'm going to use the word Israel, but at the time that he was a king, uh, the nation of Israel is actually divided north and south, and the north they called Israel, the south they called Judah. But, so he was a king of Judah. We're going to look at that. Now to set this story up, Haley has this uh, slide up there that I've, that I've, don't tell anybody, but I hijacked it off the internet, <laughs> these two slides. Don't tell David, he might correct me. But if you look at, um, I'm going to come out here and hopefully it won't sound weird. But if you look at 2000 BC, you have Abraham down here, the father of Israel. God says, hey, you're going to be the guy, you're going to be the father of, of more people than are countable. So you have a thousand years to get from Abraham to David. And we've looked at Noah, which would actually be before Abraham, clear down, clear down here somewhere. Uh, we've looked at Noah, we've looked at Joseph, right? We, and uh, then there was this kind of this whole run through. So if you look at kind of the nation of Israel uh, as a people group, kind of up the ladder they went. It took a thousand years to get to King David. Now at King David, and still today in Israel, everything is measured by the fact that David was the king. That was like the pinnacle of the empire was David. That's why I like this chart because it kind of puts him up there. Like that was the pinnacle that they think about, they, they talk about, they've, they've talked about for years, this idea that David uh, and King David, and we'll even see a reference to that in where we're going today. Then after David, his son Solomon, and <coughs> excuse me, on the, in the blue there, maybe the blue doesn't show up, but the, you have all the books of the Bible on the bottom of, of those lines. So you have David, and then 2 Samuel, Solomon, and shortly after, as soon as Solomon's gone, and some real, some real bad things happened uh, at the end of Solomon's reign, and we'll get there a little later as well, but then the nation splits north and south, and the north is Israel, the south is Judah. Uh, it consisted of the, top, the ten tribes of Israel, then the two tribes of Judah was named for Judah, so it was Judah and Benjamin. But in the course of the kings... You have really just two kings in Judah that are really very good. And flip the slide to the next one, Haley. I kind of, I, as long as I was stealing something off the internet, I thought I might as well grab two. Never know when you need a backup, right? So this is the list of the, uh, the, north, the north, Israel, and the kings there in the red with the prophets on the left. And then the south, where the kings are mostly in the red, there's a few greens. And you'll see there the yellow, I don't know how well it comes up, but you really have two very good kings, uh, Hezekiah and Josiah. Notice the prophet there, just pin this in your notes a little bit if you would, that the prominent prophet in Josiah's day was a guy named Jeremiah, and we're going to get there at the very end of the sermon and hear, what Je and hear the Jeremiah's perspective and what the Lord told him. But we're going to look at Josiah today, King Josiah, uh, it's a fascinating read. We're not going to get through all of it. I really encourage you to just, you know, later in the week, uh, sit down and read chapter 22, 23, uh, maybe even start in 21, for, and we'll get there for a little context too. I, I keep teeing up all these things. It's like I'm at the driving range and have about seven golf balls waiting. So let's get into it. Second Kings 22. 2 Kings 22. Josiah... <coughs> Josiah was eight years old, starting in verse 1, 2 Kings 22, verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was uh, Jedidiah, and daughter of 
Adonai of Bozkath. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in all the ways of his father David, and he did not turn to the right hand or to the left. The first question that came to my mind as I started to study this through is, is uh, there's quite a contrast here, you would think, and especially in our modern line of thinking. But the first question is, is uh, how, how did Josiah become king so young? Eight years old, like, so he was a kid king, right? And the crown probably, like, fell down around his ears, clear to his shoulders. He was just, he was eight. Who's eight? Somebody that's eight years old in here, raise your hand. Anybody in here that's eight? They're all downstairs. Thought we had a good example. How did he get to be king so young? Well, actually, Second Kings 21 backfills that story and I'll just read a couple of verses from chapter 21. Josiah's grandfather was Manasseh. And 2 Kings 21, 11 says, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, had done these abominations, he had acted more wickedly than all of the Amorites who were before him, and has also made Judas, <coughs> and has also made Judah sin with his idols. Verse 16, drop down a few. Verse 16 says, Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. Besides his sin, by which he made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, that's Grandpa. Here's Josiah's dad. By the way, this is not like any... Uh, Dads, don't take this in the wrong way. And in fact, there's probably some lessons here we could take in the right way if you want to apply it. But here was the picture of Josiah's father, Ammon, 2 Kings 21, a few verses later after talking about Manasseh, saying about Ammon, it says, And he did evil in the sight of the Lord as his father Manasseh had done. And so he walked in all the ways of his father had walked, and he served the idols that his father served and worshipped them. He forsook the Lord God of his fathers and did not walk in the ways of the Lord. Verse 23, then the servants, and this is what happened to him, the servants of Ammon conspired against him and killed the king in his own house. But the people of the land executed all those who had conspired against King Ammon. Then the people of the land made his son Josiah king in his place. That's how you get an eight-year-old on the throne. Essentially, there's conspiracy, there's murder, Grandpa was an idol worshiper to the nth degree. Dad followed in his steps. It was complete chaos, this family was. Absolute chaos in the sight of the Lord. You want to talk about a dysfunctional family? Whoa. Something's loud. I'll make sure all these are on. Okay. Do you want to talk about a dysfunctional family? Like this is one of many that the Bible talks about. And the first point that I want to say here is uh, <coughs> when we look at Josiah, we come real quickly to this conclusion that his family did not define him. His, his, his grandpa, who was one of the absolute worst kings of Judah, and his dad, who followed right in his grandpa's steps, did not necessarily make the imprint that we would naturally think 
into, jo- into Josiah's life. And, and I think that that's something that's an incredible promise of what God does in, in the lives of those who follow after him, is he breaks those connections. Our family does not necessarily, and especially if there's horrific things in the past, it does not have to define who you are. God is the one that defines who we are. And God was the one that defined who Josiah was and who he would be. The culture of Josiah's family was horrible. So what propelled Josiah to overcome these family failures? Uh, we look real quick. The parallel passage to, to 2 Kings is in 2 Chronicles 34. And it says this, 2 Chronicles 34.3, talking about Josiah, says, For in the eighth year of his reign... So he came, became a king at eight, eight more, 16. I went to school at Chihuahua. We get it down. So in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the, the God of his father, David. So one of the ways that you overcome these, these horrific things, one of the great examples that Josiah lays out for us is he was seeking God early. He wasn't just allowing his grandpa and his dad and the things that they were into to define where he would go what his future would be. He sought the Lord early in life. And I want to say this to the young people, it's never too early to seek the Lord. Never too early to seek the Lord. And I also want to say this to the young people, that whatever you're pursuing now, whatever you're pursuing now is going to shape who you're going to become. Like whatever you put up there as a top priority, that's going to shape who you become. What are you seeking? What are you looking for? What's important to you? What's most important? It's not to say that you can't have a few things that you're working on or whatever, but what's, what's at the top of the pile? What's at the top? Is it, you know, is it your Fortnite game? Like, you know, doing thumb exercises on the side? Like, is that what's important? Right? I'm getting a cramp just thinking about it. friend of mine who's a, a retired logger uh, told me that when they updated their equipment uh, that you could take a teenager that was really good at video games but knew nothing about logging and put them in a processor and within like two hours they would have it down, no problem. Because their eye-hand-thumb coordination, finger coordination was just over the top. You could take a crusty old logger that had been a logger and done it the old way his whole life and put him in that same piece of equipment and it's going to take, you know, it's going to take a long time, maybe not years, but it's going to take a long time. He knows what he needs at the end. He's just struggling to figure out how to get there. The kid has no idea what he needs at the end, but he's really good with the equipment. I don't know why that came to my mind. It was just something that was there. Whatever you're pursuing now, kids, that's what's going to shape the person that you become. The second thing that Josiah did to overcome these family failures is he received God's word. He received God's word. When you're looking for God, his word's going to find you. As king, Josiah knew that God's temple was the center of Jewish worship. And verses 3 through 7 tells us that the temple was in this place of disrepair. Right? It was in disrepair, and there had been, over the years, all of this tax money that they had saved up 
to fix the temple, right? So they're thinking, and as you would do, you're going to remodel your home. Guess what? You're going to save. Let's save for five years. We're going to set that money aside. We're going to do a remodel. We're going to do a fresh build, whatever. Well, they had all this money that was stuffed in a back room in the temple, stored up. Josiah says, hey, we need to start by fixing these things up. I'm kind of giving you the, the three through seven short version. And Josiah sends his high priest to go get that money, to give it to the guys that were going to do the work. But what was found was worth more than the money. Really what was found was priceless. Pick it up, scan down. 2 Kings 22, verse 8 says, Then Hilkanah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkanah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. So Shaphan, the scribe, went to the king, bringing the king word, saying, Your servants have gathered the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hands of those who would do the work, who oversee the house of the Lord. So he's giving him a little feedback. Then he says to Josiah, Then Shaphan said, The scribe showed the king saying, Hilkanah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And Josiah, was, who has been seeking the Lord as a young person, the Chronicles tells us, now <clears throat> trying to lead Judah the best he could, trying to do all he could do, and in, in knowing his own history, knowing his own background, his own family issues, he gets to this spot. And how many of us have been in the same spot? How many of us have been in the same spot where we have this encounter with the Word of God? You know, we're, we're trying to do all we can do. We think we're on the right track, and perhaps we are, and perhaps we've got some issues. Uh, maybe we're trying to just be a good husband, a good wife, a good kid, trying to be a good leader, trying to do it all, uh, but never really having the breakthrough that's needed what happened next was absolute transformation. And that's what the Word of God brings. The Word of God brings, and He brought this for Josiah, and He brings this for every one of us and everybody that we know that needs some sort of a life transformation, right? Needs some sort of a massive change. We need some sort of a wake-up call. Oftentimes that happens through pain, through misery. Not always, but oftentimes. We go down into the valley of despair at times, it seems like. But the second point is, is the Word of God brings the transformation that's really needed, even when we're just working hard at our job like Josiah was. Skim down a couple verses. Second Kings chapter 22, verse 11 says, Now it happened, actually, it's the next verse. Now it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkanah, the high priest, Achim, the son of Shaphan, Achibor, the son of Oh, uh, boy. Micaiah, Shaphan, the scribe, and Isaiah, the servant of the king, saying, and here's his words, Go inquire of the Lord for me, for the, people, <clears throat> for the people and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book, to do according all, to all that was written concerning us. So that's his response. His response breaks down in two ways. What does it look like when a man receives God's word into their lives? One, there's conviction of sin. 
There's conviction of sin. This, the tearing of the clothes was a traditional expression of horror and astonishment. In the strongest possible way, Josiah showed his grief on his own account and on the account of the nation. And this was an expression of deep conviction of sin, and really it was a good thing. We, we look at it as a bad thing in a lot of ways. Like, we don't want to be under that conviction necessarily, like, you know, not initially anyway. We don't want to be confronted with our own sin. We don't want to be confronted with where things have gotten, right? And, and in this day, in this day, as the kings went, so went the nations, by the way. As the kings went, so went the nations. Now, if you think back, and I'm going to go back in that timetable a little bit, halfway down the slide between Abraham and David was a situation where uh, Gideon, Gideon was kind of the prominent uh, player in the story, and at that point they wanted to make him the king, and Gideon says, "Ah, we already have a king. It's the Lord himself. And that's why, one of the reasons why he said that was, as the king goes, so goes the nation. Gideon had it right. Most of the kings of Israel and Judah were, had it wrong. And idolatry really was the, the accepted norm of the culture. But we're going to get into how bad it was. But for the first time, for the first time, this conviction of sin really kind of swept over the king. Hilkanah was the other, uh, oh, excuse me, not Hilkanah. Hezekiah was the other good king of Judah. But conviction kind of swept over the king as he read and had the, with the word read to him. The second thing is, is the concern for the outcome. So he had the conviction of sin, verse 11, and now the, cons- the concern for the outcome. Verse 13, the book of the law, especially the book of Deuteronomy, dealt with idolatry in detail. So no doubt that's what was read. No doubt that's what they heard. And Josiah knew that his father and his grandfather willingly and intentionally broke God's law. And that's why he says there, great is the wrath. Look there in verse 13. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. It's interesting contrast when he says the, in regard to the sin because of our fathers, talking about his father and his grandfather. But if you skip back into verse, back in the chapter, clear back up to verse 2, in regard to Josiah and himself work, walking uprightly, doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did what his father who? David. There's a little play here that's going on because when you're in the right relationship with God, you kind of reach back. You, the, the, the writer links him back to the predominant king that was in the right relationship with God, King David, the one whose heart sought after God. But now in regard to sin, he talks more closely about Josiah's grandpa Manasseh and his father Ammon. So what was God's word for Josiah? Well, it really came in two parts. He had sent out, he'd sent out this uh, <clears throat> group to go and inquire 
about God's word. Go inquire of the Lord for me. Go speak to the prophets. Go inquire. And this inquiry brought the word in two parts. There was a national word and there was a personal word. 2 Kings 22, verse 16 through 17 says, Thus saith the Lord, here's the word of the Lord, Behold, I will bring calamity on this place and all its inhabitants. That doesn't sound very good. And, but that's exactly what was going to happen. All the words of the book which the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have burned incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath shall be aroused against this place and shall not be quenched. That was the word of God for the nation of Judah. A heavy indictment. Essentially God says, uh, this is going to come to an end. It's going to get ugly. If you know the history of the two nations, Israel and Judah, uh, which were one nation uh, in civil war, at this point in the storyline, Israel's already been carted off in captivity. So now you just have Judah down in the south. The north is essentially desolate. And the Lord was not going to let the sin of idolatry go unpunished. But the Lord was also gracious to Josiah and spared him personally from this national judgment. Let's read on. Verse 18 says, But as for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord in this matter, you shall speak to him. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel concerning the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they would become a desol <clears throat> desolation and a curse, and you tore your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, says the Lord. Surely, therefore, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to, <clears throat> to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I will bring on this place. So they brought back the word to the king. So two parts, a national word and a personal word, What's really neat to highlight here in the personal word that God says about Josiah, there's three attitudes that God notices about Josiah that should be uh, something that we should constantly aspire to. Look at verse 19, and here's the reasons why God spares him. Because his heart was tender. Josiah had a tender heart towards the things of the Lord. He had a tender heart. It heart his heart hadn't gotten hardened by the things of the world or by the idolatry that uh, he had uh, been successfully avoiding, but his heart was tender. The second thing is, is that he showed humility before the Lord, where he says, uh, you have a tender heart, and you humbled yourself before the Lord. He understood, Josiah, even at a young age, he understood authority, and that God had supreme authority over all that was happening, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And Josiah submitted himself in that chain of authority. He was a man of authority, but he was a man under authority as well. And so he submitted himself. He was humble before the Lord. He wasn't proud. He wasn't arrogant. All of those kinds of things. He showed great humility before the Lord. And the third one is the contrition and the weeping. It says down there after... And he says, and you tore your clothes and you wept before me. God says of Josiah. 
In other words, Josiah was not only under deep conviction for himself and perhaps for his family, he was under deep conviction for all that he had authority over, which was the nation of Judah. Like their issues was, were, became his issues. Their sin, uh, in a sense, he started to weep over. I, I can't believe it. I can't believe how far we've gone. I can't believe how far we've fallen into idolatry. And I will say today, because the same things are true in our culture, I can't believe how far we've fallen into idolatry. Now, our idolatry looks a little different. It shakes out a little different. But the root sins are the same. They're absolutely the same. Now, at this point, Josiah could, uh, if he wanted to, as uh, he could misuse his authority as the king. And what do I mean by that? I mean that, that he could kind of, so he's got these two words. This is what's going to happen to the nation. This is what's going to happen to you. Hey, you, in a sense, I'll give you the brief. God says, hey, Josiah, you know, you're going to get a free pass. Like, you're not going to have to endure what the rest of the people are going to have to endure. And he could have misused his authority to just ride it out. Hey, I'm good. I, I, I'm good. God said, God said I'm, you know, I'm taking the high road, right? A little Denny Green story. Some of you guys don't know the football coach, Denny Green. Denny Green's always be on the high road. Look it up on YouTube. He could have taken this, you know, the escape route, distance himself from the rest of the nation. That's not what a real leader does. An attribute of a true leader is that they fight against the draw for just self-preservation. You guys get that? An attribute of a true leader, of a godly man, is they fight against this idea to just preserve themselves and, and let the rest go. That's not what Josiah did. He could have. He had the authority, but he didn't handle the authority that way in a way that would just take care of him. It wasn't about just him as number one. So men, we have to fight against that, that draw, that temptation to just dive into self-preservation. A godly leader, here's the, what a godly leader, leader does, and this is essentially what Josiah did. A godly leader leverages all that he has. A godly leader leverages all that he has, his time, his wealth, and his authority to benefit other people. That's what a godly leader does. A godly leader takes all that he has, and he, he, he seeks the Lord, he hears God's word, he receives God's word, he's convicted not only about his own personal sin, but even about the sin, in a sense, of the people around him that he's in charge of. But he takes all that he has and he leverages it, he leverages it on everybody else's behalf as much as he possibly can. That's what a godly leader does. I will go on to say that's what a godly father does as well. He goes on to promote the ways of the Lord in a positive way that has a positive effect on the people that are in his charge. Flip the chapter. Chapter 23 starts off. Now the king had sent them to gather all the elders. This is kind of the response. Josiah's response and to all that had happened so far. Now the king had sent them to gather all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and with him all the inhabitants of Jerusalem 
and the priest and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the house of the Lord. Uh, this was a, an astonishing moment for one reason that doesn't jump off the page to you and I. That seldom ever happened. Like, I, I, I can't think of another time where that had happened. But the king read it. The king read it. Usually he had people to do that. He had scribes. He had, he had all these servants. He could have anybody stand up and just fire away and read through. No, he took it personal that this is his responsibility to lead these people. This is his responsibility to turn this thing around. This was his responsibility to, to leverage all that he could, even though he wasn't going to experience the judgment side, he was going to do all he could to make their life better and to point them and lead them towards the Lord. And it's kind of understated in a sense. But Josiah just jumps up there and says, hey, I'll, I'll do it. This is my job. And he fired off and he read all that had been read to him. He reads it to the people. Verse 3 says, Then the king stood by a pillar, and he made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all of his heart, with all of his soul, to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people took a stand for the covenant. It's quite a moment when you think about it in nationalistic terms. It's quite a moment for a big group of people to stand up and to do this. I want to say for Father's Day, dads, the best thing that you can do for your wife and your kids is to give them the Word of God. The best thing. The best thing that you can do. It's not about the money when you die. It's not about the property. It's not about the funds in the bank. It's not about the investments. It's not about who gets the rocking chair or the car. The best thing. It's not even about the snackle box. Who gets the snackle box? The best thing that you can do for your wife and your kids, fellows, is be the one that's handing over the word of God like Josiah was as a nation to the nation of Judah. That's the best thing. That's the best thing. Give them the word of God and demonstrate it as Josiah did first in your own attitude, in your own actions. Demonstrate it in your own attitude, in your own actions. Everything that Josiah had done so far had built some credibility as the king to this moment. Everything that he had done. Now he could just stand up. You know, there's lots of kings that ruled harshly, for sure. That wasn't him. He took it personal. He took it serious. And he said, hey, this is my job, and I'm going to put the word of God out there for the people. I'm going to read it to them. So, fellas, the best thing that you can do is to make sure that your family has the word of God. And I'm not talking about just handing over Bibles. I'm talking about living it out. See, the goal of parenting is not just uh, to get your kids to conform to a standard so that you look good as a dad or a mom. That's not the goal. And I'll tell you what happens if it is the goal. By the time they reach 18, they're going to say, I don't like the standard, I'm out. Right? 
Like, that's what I did. I didn't like it. I'm done. I'll do my own thing. I'll create my own standard. The goal is not just conformity to a standard. It's the idea that as husbands and as wives, as parents, our goal is to to nurture our kids in the ways of the Lord and demonstrate for them how much we love God's Word and they're going to gravitate. The thing that you're into, Dad, your boys will be into, your girls will be into. The thing that you're into, Mom, your girls are going to follow the same way, generally speaking. So if the number one thing that you're demonstrating is, hey, I love the Lord, I'm following His ways, guess what's going to happen? Ducklings will follow, right? Our goal is not just conformity. Not at all. Don't mistake that. Our goal is to teach our kids and to share with them our love for the Lord and to teach them that, that they, they have that opportunity as well to guide them into loving God. Because if you love the standard, right? It's not just conforming to a standard, but it's really loving the standard. Because if you love the standard of God, if you love the standard of God's word, that you're going to keep gravitating towards it, even when it hurts, even when things are going backwards, even when life's upside down, when, when all the bad things are happening that would tempt you to walk away from the Word of God and walk away from Christ, the idea that, that you've been raised to love God, and that's been demonstrated time and time again, is that if it's not your relationship with Christ, you know, it probably needs to be set aside in that sense. So that's what's critical. That we really understand what the gospel is. I'm kind of getting off my notes. But essentially that's what Josiah did. Josiah is this young king. You would say, uh, and I would say, <coughs> extremely inexperienced. Yet he had what experience couldn't give him. Josiah fell in love with God's word. And he fell in love with his people in a sense that he did all he could do to help them and to promote who God was. How did that happen? How did that transformation from Josiah make such a big difference? Well, transformation, transformation in a life, the, the, the natural course from transformation then is to reformation. Like when, when, when you live a transformed life and you think back about your own story, you, just take a second, think about your own conversion to Christianity and the, and the days and weeks that followed that. Everything's fresh and new. Everything's like, man, I gotta read more. I gotta have more. I gotta be around Christian people more often. Like all of the, it's all exciting. It's all new. And that I gotta have more and I can need to continue to go in this new direction is really part of the process of God reforming your life. So Josiah went on this national reformation after he'd made this covenant, and the people had signed on as well. We'll get to that at the very end. Josiah went on this national reformation to deal with the widespread and the generational idolatry. Now here's the context for the culture. For over 300 years from Solomon to Josiah, the greater nation of Israel, now at this point it's split into two, so Israel and Judah, but the greater nation of Israel was embroiled in idol worship of every conceivable kind. Every conceivable kind. I started to list them out. <laughs> I was talking with Haley and she's, 
were kind of like, I don't know if you want to put all that on there. I was like, yeah, go ahead, do whatever you want to do. So I'm not sure what you guys are seeing. But I started to just highlight in my notes, like, all of these actions that were taken. And the rest of 2 Kings chapter 23 tells us the details of Josiah's purging out of the idolatry from Judah. And when he was, uh, <coughs> he didn't stop at Judah, by the way. He went north into Israel and uh, did the same there. Even though there was no, nobody there as far as they had been hauled off into captivity. Look at 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 4. It says, And the king commanded Hilkanah the high priest and the priest of the second order and the doorkeepers to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the articles that were made for Baal and Asherah <coughs> and for all the hosts of heaven. So right off the get-go, verse 4, we see how bad it really is. This is, the, uh, this is the indicator. Is that idol worship was not just something for some high mountain somewhere. And the Bible talks about that, all the high places. When it says high places, it's talking about idol worship. It wasn't just there. Like, it, oh, yeah, we have an idol problem, but it's really just, you know, up on Huckleberry, right? It wasn't that. Baal and Asherah were being worshipped in the house of God. Like, I'm sure there would be more than one of you would come to me and say, what are we doing? If we rolled in these golden calves and these idols here and we set up this big, you know, thing right up here on the stage... You know, and, and, we, and we, we changed the way that we worship here. And, and people were, you know, engaging in this right here. Like if that was the direction we went, there would be like all of you would come and say, uh, yeah, we're not in it, we're out. Right? Wouldn't you? Like I would if I, was, if I was, you know, in a church that did that. This was normal. This is the way it had been. They didn't know any different. You got worshiping Baal, Asherah, all the hosts of heaven, meaning angel worship. We don't have that in our culture, I don't think. And he burned them outside of Jerusalem, the word says, in the fields of the Kidron, and carried their ashes to Bethel. Then he removed the idolatrous priest. Uh-oh. He removed the idolatrous priest. So not only was it going on in the temple, but there were obviously were priests that were promoting it, whom the kings of Judah had ordained to, <clears throat> ordained to burn incense in the high places in the cities of Judah and in the places all around Jerusalem. And those who burned incense to Baal and to the sun and to the moon and to the constellations and to all the hosts of heaven and to the horoscopes and the evening paper Right? That's what they're kind of talking about here, worshiping constellations. Verse 6 says, And he brought out the wooden image from the house of the Lord. Again, more stuff in the house of the Lord. To the brook Kidron, outside Jerusalem, burned it at the brook Kidron and ground it to ashes and threw its ashes on the graves of the common people. So, so, so far in six verses, we have this you know, this massive change that Josiah is bringing to Judah. He's saying, we are going to systematically, we're going to systematically deal with idolatry. And like it says in the New Testament, judgment started in the house of the Lord. That's exactly what Josiah had going on. He started in the house of the Lord. He says, we've got to start by purging ourselves. 
we got to start by purging where we worship. And so he, he drug all of the idolatry out. And he didn't just, you know, burn it. He smashed it. He ground it. He threw the ashes, you know. I mean, he went to these extreme measures to make a point. Extreme measures. Verse 7 says, Then he tore down the ritual booths of the perverted persons that were in the house of the Lord. Scholars say that that's a reference to the, uh, the perverted persons is a reference to all of the sexual nature uh, that comes with idolatry. A uh, lot that you see in the Greek and the Roman culture that we've studied in the New Testament, especially in the Corinthians, the book First and Second Corinthians. But there were these ritual booths that were being <coughs> tore down where the women wove hanging, uh, hangings from the wooden image. And he brought them, I'm in verse 8, and he brought them all the priests from the cities of Judah and defiled, <coughs> and defiled the high places where the priest had burned incense from Geba to Beersheba, and he broke down the high places at the gates, which were at the entrance of the gates of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were <coughs> to the left of the city gate. Nevertheless, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem. Well, no kidding. They were probably running for their lives. But they ate unleavened bread among their brethren. Right? So word was getting out. If you look at that particular verse, word was kind of getting out. Hey, Josiah is clean in the house. Like we're, <laughs> you know, we're in uh, priests of the high places. not a real popular occupation right now. Verse 10 is pretty telling. And he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or daughter pass through the fire of Molech. What's that about? The fires of Molech, this actually goes way back into the Old Testament, uh, but the fires of Molech, Molech was a, an idol where child sacrifice happened and where they would essentially burn kids alive. And that was, that was part of that cultural worship. That was normal. And it had become normal for Judah, if you can believe it or not. Now we think, oh, for heaven's sakes, we would never want to really sacrifice kids, would we? Not in our culture. How, do, how, how would you survive this culture where they're burning these kids alive? Well, we take a little bit more sanitary approach to it. It's called abortion. It's a sacrifice. A whole generation from my age down, uh, multiple generations, have been sacrificed at the altar of convenience. What's Topeth? The Topeth is kind of the longer version of Toph. Uh, and the uh, little bit of digging I did about that, uh, why did it says he, talking about Josiah, defiled Topeth means he tore it apart, destroyed it. Toph is an uh, ancient word for drum. And so essentially, to give you a picture of what was going on, as children were being sacrificed and burned alive, this toph, or topheth, was basically the playing of drums. Why'd they play the drums? They played the drums to drown out the sound of burning kids. That's what they were into. That's the way it went. You can make all the cultural correlations you want to for our day. There seems to be a lot of drum pounding in our culture uh, over this same topic. 
and God was removing it. And Josiah was leading the charge. Look at verse 11 for the sake of time. I need to hurry. Then he removed the horses of the kings of Judah that had, dedic- that had dedicated to the sun at the entrance of the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan, Melech, and the officer who was at the court. He burned the chariots of the sun <coughs> with fire, the altars that were on the roof, the upper chambers of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars which Manasseh, so his grandpa, had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And the king broke down and pulverized there and threw their dust into the brook Kidron. And the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem, which were in the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, king of Israel, had built for Ashereth, the abomination of the Sidonians, at Kiamash, the abomination of the Moabites, and for Milcom, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he broke down into pieces the sacred pillars and cut down the wooden images and filed filled their places with the bones of the men. So he didn't just uh, say, yeah, tear it down, throw it in the... He tore it down, he crushed it, he cut it up, he burned it. And if you know the rest of the story, they lived happily ever after, right? You guys have all read this story. It's a fascinating story, really. Uh, No. Nope. They did not live happily ever after. No sooner was Josiah dead and in the grave uh, than Judah was back knee-deep into idolatry. You really read through this and you're like, what's going on here? Like, why didn't it stick? Why why didn't what Josiah do, why, why didn't it have any shelf life? That was the question that kept running through my mind. Like, he just... He just leveled all of the idolatry in Judah. I mean, it wasn't, like I said, he didn't just like put it away for a rainy day. He crushed it. He burned it. He buried it. And as soon as he had died, it was all back. Jeremiah gives us an interesting perspective on this. Jeremiah, as you notice in that second slide that Haley put up, was the... uh, predominant prophet in the days of Josiah. And in Jeremiah 3, verse 10, Jeremiah gives us a summary of the people of Judah during this whole event. And he says this, and kind of, I'm not reading all of verse 10, but enough to get perspective. Jeremiah says this, And Judah had not turned to me, this is God speaking, And Judah had not turned to me with her whole heart, But in pretense, says the Lord, in pretense, Judah had followed Josiah. In pretense. Pretense means they were faking it, right? They were just going along. Oh, yeah, good job, Josiah. Let's just clear the land. That sounds good. That sounds good. Josiah tips over in a battle, and the next thing you know, like not even a generation later, uh, they're just right back in the mix. So essentially, they were faking it. The nation was faking it. They were pretending to be spiritual. They were pretending to follow God. But notice uh, what God says. Judah did not turn to me with her whole heart. See, Josiah had had this wonderful transforming experience with the Lord. His heart was changed for sure in the midst of a decaying culture and in the midst of the idolatry. 
But why was it different for Josiah than it was for the rest of the nation? It was different because they weren't really in it. They were pretending. They were pretentious in their activity. Their heart wasn't changed. They were faking it. See, when it comes to a place of leadership, you can leverage all you can for those that are in your control. But at the end of the day, if their hearts aren't changed, if their hearts aren't melted towards God, if there's no life transformation that happens for them in a downhill sense, in a, in a, in a, in a continuing sense, right? Then, then it doesn't, then, then they're just going to go back to what they were comfortable with. And they were really comfortable with idolatry. This is why I kind of stress for parents, right? Like, stay in there. Engage. Don't outsource leading your kids spiritually. Don't outsource it to the church. Don't outsource it to me. Right? You wouldn't outsource your diet to me. Just eat once a week. That's foolish. Like, there's no way I would do that. <laughs> Maybe it would help, I don't know. To the kids here, I'll say this. We learned this as parents, and we spoke kind of straightforwardly about these things, especially when things were difficult. Uh, when it comes to raising kids, I'll say this. Kids, your parents can control your environment, but they can't change your heart. Right? And that's just a truism. That's just, it's just a, a, a truth that can't be explained in any other way. And so when we were having a tough time, when we were having a tough time, I can point at, I can point at specific ones that are here. When we were having a tough time, that's exactly what I would say. And we had many a conversation that went essentially this way. Son, I can change your environment. I can affect your environment, but I can't affect your heart. That's God's job. And that's what we prayed for. We prayed that God would affect the hearts. We prayed that God would, would intercede where we knew our limits were run short. That, that it wouldn't just be about ritual. It wouldn't be about church status quo as far as our kids went, that it would be simply about them, regardless of the circumstance and, and the current issue that was on the table, it would be about them coming to faith in Christ. Because if that's not at the center, like if that's not the middle of the bullseye for how we raise our kids, fathers, how we govern our homes, men, how we lead the church or how we lead in our communities... Like if those things aren't the middle of the bullseye, we're missing it. We're missing it. And the shelf life to whatever we do, like Josiah, is going to be short in the end. You want it to not be short at the end? Keep shooting at the bullseye. Get down to the meat. Be real with your kids. Say, hey, I can, oh, I can affect environment all right. And I did. We did. But that's not our chief concern was not environment. Our chief concern was the heart. So I have two verses, two, a couple of verses left. I can hear the pitter-patter of little feet if the worship team want to come on up. 
As I mentioned, Jeremiah had watched this whole thing unfold. He was there, no doubt, as Josiah had gathered everybody at the temple. He was one of these, like I said, the predominant prophet of the day. But he said this about these things in Jeremiah chapter 31. He said, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the days that I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. So not like that, and not like what happened with Moses. But he says, My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. So here's Jeremiah saying, this is what's coming. This is how God's going to do something different, similar but different in the days of Josiah. He says this, the Lord says through Josiah, I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. How's that going to happen? How would, how would what Jos- Jeremiah had to say in chapter 31, how would that be? All they ever knew was what they had in front of them chiseled on stone. All they ever knew was this old, in Josiah's day, was this old dusty book. How are we going to get from a dusty book to the fact that things are actually hammered into our hearts? The answer is simple. The answer is the Sunday school answer. I should have all the kids say it. The answer is Christ. The answer is Jesus. And Jesus talked about how this would take place. He says in John 16, 7 through 8, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away... The helper will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. The Holy Spirit is who reforms our lives. When you trust Christ as your Savior, when you accept the fact that he paid a sin debt that you could never pay, I know I could never pay. Like I tried listing my sins one time, I ran out of ink. Right? Grab another pen. Keep going. No, I'm kidding. But the point is, is that, that Christ paid that penalty for me, pays that penalty for you. He sends His Holy Spirit to live within us. Where He says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. That's how we thrive in a decaying culture. We thrive in a decaying culture through the power, the conviction, and the leading of the Holy Spirit. And you can't get that apart from Christ. It's not going to happen. Your neighbor that doesn't know Christ is not going to thrive in a decaying culture. He may for a while. She may for a while. There may be an aspect. They might have a lot of money. They can maybe try to outspend a decaying culture. But they're not going to thrive spiritually in a decaying culture. And it's thriving spiritually through our relationship with Christ, the middle of the bullseye, and being led and guided and empowered by His Spirit. That's how we thrive. That's how we get it done as Christ's followers. It's Him who empowers us, like He empowered Josiah, to seek God early, to receive His Word, and to help us stay faithful. Will you rise as we worship the Lord?